Good morning, Woodmont. Welcome to worship. Would you join me in prayer? Loving God, open our hearts and minds and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to remind you that we are doing a food drive uh, today from 9 to 3 at Campbell West, which is uh, right here behind the church. We're partnering with Second Harvest uh, to get basically food and supplies to families in uh, the Metro Nashville Public Schools. So you can bring a bag or a couple bags of, of food, um, canned goods, canned tuna, um, uh, cereal. You could also bring uh, hand sanitizer, toilet paper, any of those kind of supplies, and you pull up the Circle Drive, there'll be volunteers there uh, to get it out of your car, and this is going to help uh, folks in our community who are struggling and who need these supplies. And so this is a way that our church can serve, and that's going to happen today uh, from 9 to 3 o'clock at Campbell West, which is right off Valley Brook Road. We've started a new sermon series now focusing on the book of James. And the basic theme of James is what practical faith looks like in action. Uh, James is an epistle that really shows us how we can live out our faith in our everyday life. It is very applicable uh, to our lives and it's very relevant. And every chapter of James speaks to us uh, in a, a different way. And today we move into chapter two where James says this, my brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor, you say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, James is on to something here. We tend to treat people differently based on what they have or don't have. And this isn't good. The coronavirus and quarantine period has has taught us many lessons, but one of the lessons that we've learned over the past few months is that not everybody in our community and in our nation and world has been affected in the same way. The virus has exposed certain inequalities in our culture that we've always known were there, but that sometimes we don't really think about or it doesn't come to the, the forefront of our minds. For example, Right now, there are many people who need food and basic supplies in this community, and they don't have money to buy them. They've lost their jobs, or they've been furloughed, and some of them don't know how they're going to eat, where their next meal is going to come from. And so that's why we're doing this food and this supply drive today here at our church. Right now, there are people in the restaurant and hospitality industry who have been out of work for months. And many of them don't have a nest egg or, or savings built up that they can turn to during this time. 
So they are scared and, and they are hurting and they're wondering how they're going to uh, take care of themselves and their family. Right now there are children in our community who usually get their healthy meals uh, when they're at school. And, and with schools now being closed and out, they don't have that security. And they might wonder where their next meal is going to come from. And many of them sadly go to bed hungry at night. That is happening right here in this community. We are all aware that there are many different socioeconomic classes that are present in our culture, but you could certainly argue that the poor and the most vulnerable have been very heavily affected by the coronavirus, hit the hardest because they don't have a security blanket. They don't have a backup option. And so we are called as Christians to do whatever we can to help them. And again, that's why we're doing these food drives and these supply drives to help the people in our community who need help. There's another narrative that has been emerging in the midst of all of this. And this is the one where our politics and our partisanship seem to be playing out in this coronavirus conversation. So quickly summarized, it sounds something like this. Either you are ready to get back to work and you don't care about people's health, or you don't wanna go back to work and you wanna continue wrecking this country's economy. You guys know what I'm talking about. You've heard this, you've read this in the papers, seen it on the news. You've probably heard different friends that you have approaching this from a different perspective. There are people who need to go back to work so that they can provide for their families. And, and that doesn't mean that they don't care about public health and the well-being of our community. But, but if, if they don't go to work, then they don't get paid and they need to go back to work. Our economy does not work well when it's just shut down. It doesn't really work at all when it's just shut down. And yet at the same time, there are many people who remain concerned that reopening too quickly is going to lead to a spike in cases and potentially to this virus getting back out of control and spreading rapidly when people start getting out and interacting. And, and that too is a legitimate concern. There are good people that are coming at this from different perspectives and different opinions, and we need to remember that. Dualistic thinking is often a trap. Either you are over here or you are over here. Usually the truth, the hard truth, is somewhere in the middle. And last Sunday I talked about the importance of finding nuance and finding balance in a culture that seems to be so polarized, even when it comes to this time of battling a pandemic. In chapter two, James seems to be talking about the problem that our culture has with superficiality. You know, we live in a world that seems to judge everything by the outward appearance. How beautiful are you? How successful are you? How skinny are you? How connected are you? How much money do you have? Where do you live? Uh, how much power do you yield? How popular are you? You know, 
human beings are guilty of being superficial even when we know that we shouldn't. It happens all the time. It seems to be our, our default way of living sometimes. But it's not the way that God calls us to live. It's not what we find Jesus doing and teaching throughout his life and his ministry. It's not what we find James saying in this epistle. Treating people differently because of what they have or don't have is a human tendency. Remember that verse in the Old Testament, uh, the book of 1 Samuel, when they're looking for a new king of Israel and they, they come across David, the young shepherd boy, and they think, surely this is not the next king of Israel. Do you remember that famous verse from 1 Samuel where uh, it says, you know, mortals look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart? So regardless of whether people are rich or poor, beautiful or physically challenged, whether they live in a nice house or, or not, whether they drive a fancy car or not, whether they have lots of friends or just a few friends, as Christians, we are called to do everything in our power to get beyond appearance and to get to know what's going on in somebody's heart. God tells us, throughout scripture that that's what matters. I grew up in Memphis. Uh, that was where I was born and raised. My father served a church there for uh, 35 years. And in 1968, before I was even born, there was a guy uh, who was shot there because he gave his life to this basic message, you know, particularly as it relates to race. Five years before he was shot at the Lorraine Motel, Martin Luther King Jr. gave what has now become a famous speech in Washington, D.C. And he gave this speech not just as a civil rights leader, not just as a political activist, not just as a, as a minister, but he also gave it as a father. Where he said this, he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's what he said. People are to be judged by the content of their character. There's nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with, with doing well and having some nice things and working hard and reaping the, the benefits of all of that, but that never should give any of us a pass on the character question. What type of character do we have? What type of character do we demonstrate? That should not be determined by what we have or don't have, whether we're rich or poor. Character is separate of that. It's who you are. It's the way you act and behave and talk. It's what's on your heart. People are to be judged by the content of their character. And character is formed during times like what we've been going through, during trials and tribulations. James says that at the outset of this epistle, that that endurance is important and endurance builds our character. Character is tied to the way you treat other people, the way you interact with other people, including the people in your family, including the people in the society that are struggling right now. James says this in chapter two, he says, you do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, 
You commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Some of you have heard me say this over the years, that, that if we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves, then that first means that we have to love and respect ourselves. Because if we don't do that, then we are going to treat our neighbor the way that we treat ourselves, and that might not be a good thing. We are going to project our own issues, our own disappointments, our own challenges onto our neighbor because we haven't made peace within our own heart. And we see this all the time in our culture. People are dissatisfied with their own lives for whatever reason, and then they just go and project that onto everybody else. David Brooks wrote a great book a number of years ago called The Road to Character. And I use this book in my class at, at Vanderbilt because I think it, it has so much wisdom and it raises so many good points. But in the final chapter of the book, it's almost worth buying the book for the last chapter. He gives what's called the humility code. And he, he first asks some very important questions. Uh, I would actually call these theological questions that all of us should wrestle with. What are those questions? Towards what should I orient my life? Who am I and what is my nature? How do I mold my nature to make it gradually better day by day? What virtues are most important to cultivate and, and what weaknesses should I fear the most? How can I raise my children with a true sense of who they are and a practical set of ideas about how to travel along the road to character? These are questions that we should all ask and that we should all wrestle with because these are the questions that matter. And then he actually gives some insight in response to the questions. He says, we sin, but we also have the capacity to recognize sin, to feel ashamed of sin, to overcome sin. We have the capacity to struggle with ourselves. Humility reminds you that you are not the center of the universe, but you serve a larger order. Pride makes cold-heartedness and cruelty possible. Character is built in the course of your inner confrontation. You become more disciplined and considerate and loving through a thousand small acts of self-control, sharing, service, friendship, and refined enjoyment. The things that lead us astray are short-term, things like lust and fear and vanity and gluttony, and the things that we call character, these are the things that endure over the long haul, courage and honesty and humility. Brooks says, we're saved by grace, only by quieting the self, by muting the sounds of our own ego so that we can see the world clearly. The person who successfully struggles against weakness and sin may or may not become rich and famous, but that person will certainly become mature. I think James is very concerned with this subject of character and spiritual maturity. I think that's what he's getting at throughout this epistle. What does a spiritually mature person look like? What is the essence of Christian character? That's what he's talking about here. And one of the best ways that James answers this, especially in chapter two, and this actually kind of becomes the main theme of the epistle, is he says this, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works, can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace and keep warm and eat your fill and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, 
is dead. Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. You know, I mentioned last week that there's been this historical debate in Christianity where people have kind of pitted the Apostle Paul's basic belief that we are saved by grace through faith against what some call James's perspective on works righteousness, that we have to go and do good things. But I've always said, don't be fooled by that uh, false set of choices because the reality is we need, we need both. We are saved by grace through faith. And if we have a genuine faith in God through Jesus Christ, then that will lead us to do good works and to serve and to make a difference whenever we can. Edgar Guest wrote a poem that I've always loved. And I think about it uh, when I read James chapter two in this talk about faith without works is dead. The, the poem that he wrote is called, I'd Rather See a Sermon. And so I'm gonna share this with you because I love it and I think it's so powerful. He said, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eyes a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Finding counsel can be confusing, but examples always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the ones who live their creeds. For to see good put into action is what everybody needs. I soon can learn to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lecture you deliver may be very wise and very true, but I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. For I might misunderstand you and the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. When I see a deed of kindness, I am eager to be kind. When a weaker brother stumbles and a strong man stays behind, just to see if he can help him, then the wish grows strong in me to become as big and thoughtful as I know that friend to be. And all travelers can witness that the best of guides today are not the ones who tell us, but the ones who show us the way. One good person teaches many. People believe what they behold. One deed of kindness noticed is worth 40 that are told. Who stands with those of honor, learns to hold this honor dear. For right living sparks a language which to everyone is clear. Though an able speaker charms me with his eloquence, I say, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Or as St. Francis once said, go out into the world and preach the gospel and use words only if necessary. I wanna leave you this morning with a few questions to think about as we draw closer to the summer months, as we begin to slowly uh, emerge, the economy slowly opens. These are questions that, that have kind of come to me based on these words of James, and I wanna leave you with them. The first question is this, who have you helped lately? Whose life have you made a little better because you reached out and offered them help? It doesn't have to be something major. Maybe it's a friend who's going through a divorce. Maybe it's a family member that's really struggling during uh, this coronavirus period with fear and anxiety and worry, uh, or maybe they're financially struggling. Maybe it's somebody who's battling depression or addiction. Maybe it's calling the, the spouse of someone who has terminal illness or they lost their spouse within the last couple of years. Uh, 
Maybe it's calling a shut-in in our church or, or, or teaching children's Sunday school when we finally get to return to our building and have children's Sunday school again. Maybe it's visiting somebody who's in the hospital or uh, just at their home. Who is struggling and who could use your help right now? And how have you helped them and how will you help them? The second question that I'll leave you with is this. Where do you find meaning and purpose in your life? I think this quarantine period has given all of us a time to not only slow down, but also to just reflect about our lives. I mean, what is life about? And, and, and what are the things that we want to return to? And what are the things that we don't want to return to? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote a book called Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence. It's a relevant book just given what our world faces right now. But Sachs says this, he says, science, technology, and the free market and the liberal democratic state have enabled us to reach unprecedented achievements in knowledge, freedom, life expectancy, and affluence. They are among the greatest achievements of human civilization and are to be defended and cherished. But he says, they do not and cannot answer the questions that every reflective individual asks at some point in his or her life. Who am I? Why am I here? And how shall I live? Religion matters because it's hard to live without meaning. We all long for meaning and purpose in our lives. So where do you find meaning in your life? Where do you find purpose? And are you investing your time and your energy and your thoughts in those things? And then finally this morning, this question. What are the ways that you are trying to get to know people on a deeper level? Where you go beneath the surface? Where you don't just judge people for what they have or don't have? And, uh, how connected they are, or what they can do for you. You know, this is not always easy for our culture. People are very good at, at putting up fronts. People are very good at pretending to be somebody that they're not. They're really good at letting their job or their career define them. So what are you doing to break down the external walls that humans have constructed in order to get to know people on a deeper level? How are you building up trust? How are you getting beneath the surface? The world will always be concerned with what's on the outside, beauty, glitz, glamour, houses, cars, money, all the things that, that people get impressed by. But God is calling us to go deeper and James is encouraging us to move beyond the superficial, to see into each other's hearts. I think James is saying that answering these questions will lead us to putting our faith into action, not just by the things that we do, but by the way that we talk to and interact with other people. When you ask somebody how they're doing, do you really listen to what they are saying? This will lead us to, to, to less talk and more action. Because when it comes to Christianity, talk is cheap if you don't back it up by the way you live. And I think that's what our world needs right now is more authenticity and a deeper faith that goes beneath the surface. 
that connects people on a heart level, a gut level, so that we can show each other that we truly care and that we're here. Amen.